This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. It's so interesting um, watching. This is one of the the benefits, but also the curses of uh, awareness of watching what comes up, the anxiety that comes up when I'm together with a group of people in a crowd. Um, I, yesterday, our group had our first time meeting together, and I noticed that when we started to chant, not everybody had their mask on, and I could just feel the anxiety rise. There's no real reason, you know, but um, I mean, there is a real reason, but within our group, I know that everybody's vaccinated and we're taking normal precautions, but it's just the way the body reacts. We've learned, um, I think, over the last uh, year and a half plus, we've learned uh, some fear around humans. So the question came to me uh, among, there's a group of us who have been sitting uh, daily since COVID began at 5.30 on Zoom. One of the benefits of this time has been more sitting for me. And uh, the question arose this week, uh, one person in our group said, what do you do when you're so overwhelmed? She said, I know you've told us before, but tell me again. So I wanted to talk about that sense of overwhelm, uh, which for me, it comes and goes. Maybe uh, some of you are able to bypass it entirely or get caught up in it entirely. And the first thing, um, if, if you look at the news, I looked at the news this morning and on the front page of the New York Times, um, of course, the mess that's happening in Afghanistan. And there's hurricane and earthquake that just happened in Haiti, not to mention getting over a uh, uh, presidential uh, assassination just two weeks before. There's, um, of course, the COVID surge, long article. about uh, the Gulf Coast and how, uh, how hospitals are overrun. There's an article by Greta Thunberg about uh, this is the world left to us by the adults. <laughs> um, political turmoil, um, fires, fires, so many fires, fires here, fires in one of my favorite parts of the world in northern Minnesota, where there's nothing but lakes, and yet there are still fires up there. So it's very easy to feel overwhelmed. And I thought about that word and the uh, literal uh, definition of the word. The first thing that I looked up said to bury or drown beneath a huge mass to inundate, to upset, to overthrow, to turn upside down. And that is how it feels sometimes. We're turned upside down. 
and personally for me the greatest thing I love all the noise of the traffic because it makes me slow down and take a breath so I'll be grateful for that and we can breathe together but the most difficult thing for me personally is that all of these things that are happening well maybe not the natural disasters but most even the natural disasters we have the capacity to deal with all of this we have the capacity not to make war we have the capacity to do something about our use of um, fuel we have great capacities as human beings but because of our friends greed hate and delusion uh, it gets in the way and we don't do those things that can really alleviate our suffering and our pain. So for me, this touches on, uh, I'm sure other people have written about it, but Roshi Joan Halifax wrote uh, recently about moral suffering. And particularly for those of us who are practicing a way that is grounded in our um, ethics, grounded in what we believe about not harming and treating people well, to avoid evil, to do the good we can, and to wake up with all beings. That's, that's, we say that almost every day. And so it, it's almost, uh, uh, it almost feels physical that kind of injury, that kind of suffering that isn't necessary. I heard uh, a nurse on NPR this week, and she used that term. I was really amazed because I don't think this woman was a Buddhist practitioner, but she said, this is moral injury, that there are people who are dying, who are arguing with her and saying it isn't COVID. That's a hoax. People are dying. And in general, I feel we are quibbling over whether to wear these and whether to get a shot in the arm. It's such a small thing. These are such simple things. When people are dying, literally, in, in Afghanistan, in Haiti, in our hospitals. So, I take my friend's question very much to heart. What are we to do? And we spent some time in our meeting talking about, well, what do you do? So I'm curious for any of you, I think the first thing to do is to pet that kitty. <laughs> Absolutely. That wasn't on our list, but it's a good one. <laughs> um, what do you do? What do you do for yourselves right now? Yes, please. Because the cat, what comes to mind is a friend sent me an email that horses were brought into, uh, I think, retirement homes where people were dying, and it was like 
totally appropriate. Yeah. So being with animals, being with our, our own instincts, because I think we get away from our own instincts, uh, which are really, you know, I think very fine, but we layer them over with all kinds of thinking. And animals help us to do that, to get in touch with that instinctual energy. Any, anything else? What do you do when you feel overwhelmed? Maybe nobody here ever feels overwhelmed. <laughs> yes, please. Well, it's like when you're on an airliner and it says, you know, put your own mask on first before trying to help other people. And I think that's all we can really do is do our meditations, take care of ourselves, and then help out where you can. Right. So I don't know if you all heard that at home, but put your own masks on first. And any of you want to offer? They're overwhelmed by... I, by, I, I do. Yeah. Hi, 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 Kathy. Hi, it's good to see you. I cook. <laughs> she cooks, yes. Let's hear it for cooking. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of that. I haven't thought of that, but it is very soothing. And, it and is I think, um, Randy. yeah, and Randy, you have yourself unmuted. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I just, yeah, I, there is a sense of powerlessness in, in terms of the big picture, Afghanistan, Haiti. I just, but I just try to do what keeps me sane here. And part of that is you know, being in my studio, making stuff. I've been doing a lot of glazing and, and um, just doing what tries to keep me whole. And I don't know if that's selfish, but hopefully that selfishness kind of spills over a little, you know, taking care of myself will spill over a little bit into the world around me as I go about shopping or doing whatever, or talk to my daughter and my wife and, and, and uh, just trying to be a, yeah, this morning when I was sitting, I, I, I just sort of felt, uh, um, this was earlier this morning, the, the thing of just I don't know what goes out, out into my neighborhood. Because when I get done sitting, I, I do this whole thing, especially on Sunday, I do this whole blessing thing. And part of it is that I bless my neighborhood and then I bless all sentient beings, but I bless my neighborhood just to, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it does any good or not. But uh, well, I don't know it does do. Yeah. So I just want to say we do a funny thing. Uh, we say, is this selfish? I think we're very confused between selfishness and self-care. We can't save anybody if we're not taking care of ourselves. And we really don't ever save anybody, frankly. Um, maybe there's a chance we can save ourselves. And in doing that, that's very helpful to others. So anybody here want to? Yes, please. Oh, yes. Exercise where you must focus on one thing at a time, or at my age, you trip and fall. <laughs> but both, and focusing on one thing at a time. So I think these things that we do for ourselves, I sort of categorized them. And I think um, doing something physical is really important. Um, even if it's just to stand up and stretch. Even right now, just to stretch. If just what I'm talking about is bringing up images that you don't like, you know, throw it out there. 
and taking some kind of action. It might be that you support a cause, you donate a little bit of money, or like Randy says, you go out and you, breast, uh, you bless your neighborhood. You read something uplifting, you listen to music, you do something. Another thing that came up in our group was to reach out to friends. You call somebody and say, I, I'm feeling down today, how are you doing? Be out here at Chikoji. This is so easy. You're already here in it. I really, I felt so privileged in so many, many ways when we were first locked down because where I had to shelter in place was a pretty beautiful place. I could go out and walk in my neighborhood. I could walk for miles and miles and um, I wasn't in a big city with a lot of people. Um, being outdoors and being in the natural world. But all of these, I realize, are ways of connecting, ways of connecting with ourselves, connecting our minds and our hearts and our bodies, connecting ourselves with other people, connecting ourselves to the wider world. And we need to do this because we are in a time of great woundedness and it's causing a lot of trauma for everybody. One of my favorite authors on trauma is a psychoanalyst named Donald Kalshed and he's, um, he's written a wonderful book. If, if, you know, you might not be interested because it's a therapy book, but it's called Trauma and the Soul. And he talks a lot about, he uses Dante as a um, sort of a jumping off point for the ways he talks about trauma and the powers of dis. Dis is what is in the central uh, um, circle of hell. So, but anyway, he says trauma is about the fact that we are all given more to experience in this life than we can bear to experience consciously. Another definition of trauma is going through something alone, unwitnessed, without somebody there with us. And how many have been going through these last year and a half pretty much alone or know people who are alone? not enough contact. We just had, I think, the second or third meeting. We've, I have a smaller group, Dharma study group, and we met for the third time in person. And one of our members said, oh, this is so exciting. I said, you were here last month, were you? She said, yes, it's still exciting. <laughs> That's wonderful. You know, that, that we, but we really need that. And we need not to be walking down the street and avoiding each other. Uh, our bodies need that. So we are going through things too much alone. And another definition of trauma is not having the time to recover. So when I say all those things that are happening, it's just one after another after another. It's an assault of so many things that are going on, and we're not having this time to recover. And so this causes us to be wounded. 
And when we act from a place of our wound, of our trauma, that's where we cause more suffering. That's when we cause harm. That's when we act out, we hurt ourselves and others. But working with it, you know, as Kalshad is saying, there's, there's more uh, that happens to us than we're able to experience consciously. I think our zazen practice and maybe a walking practice or a bowing practice, whatever you do to bring yourself into awareness, it makes you more conscious, makes you more aware of uh, where your mind goes and how you can go into one emotional state or another and then how it changes. So that truth of impermanence um, it's really critical. I always say the upside of impermanence is that when things are bad, they will change. So we make things more conscious and then we're able to act out of love rather than <coughs> our wound, to act out of connection rather than fear. So, I've been reading this wonderful book I want to recommend. Um, uh, I, I find now that not everybody knows who Ram Das was, but I think maybe everybody here is old enough, maybe not. Uh, but certainly was one of my heroes, and Be Here Now is really still a seminal book, I think, uh, for people coming into awareness. And there's a wonderful uh, autobiography, um, and it's long, but it's just really rich, and just his um, spiritual development is just, and his own uh, awareness of his foibles and where he falls down and where he also becomes connected. Um, but he says, towards the end of the book, he says, Gandhi said, when you surrender completely to God as the only truth worth having, you find yourself in the service of all that exists. It becomes your joy and recreation. You never tire of serving others. So I have a little bit of an allergy to this word God because, um, well, that's another talk. But um, I like to substitute the word mystery because I relate to that better. So when you surrender completely to the mystery as the only truth worth having, you find yourself in the service of all that exists. It becomes your joy and recreation. You never tire of serving others. And then he goes on to say, billions of acts create suffering in the world, acts of ignorance, greed, violence. But in the same way, each act of caring, the billion tiny ways that we offer compassion, wisdom, and joy to one another, serves to preserve and heal our world. When I help someone change their perspective on their individual problems, I also change society. Mayor Baba said, love is like a disease. Those who don't have it, catch it. 
from those who do. <laughs> and then he goes on, love is transmitted from Maharaji, his, his guru. Love is transmitted from Maharaji's heart to my heart, to your heart, and to the next heart, one to another. That's my social action. It happens one heart at a time. So yesterday, um, our Sangha did a uh, ceremony of um, remembrance and well-being and also joy. And I found this um, little bit of a poem from Khalil Gibran that I shared then that I want to share here. He says, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. When you are joyous, look deep into your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again into your heart and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. So there have been great losses this year and every year, always there is loss. But particularly, I think we're very um, sensitized, and I hope in a good way, in a, in a connecting way, but to realize that those we have lost, they have been our delight. That's why it is our sorrow. So to remember the delight and the joy, and not to turn away from the sorrow, you know, is. As Rumi says uh, in his poem, Welcome Difficulty, that when difficulty comes, it may be something that is sweeping you out, sweeping your house, making you ready for some new delight. Great questions. I don't know if you all at home could hear. No. So I'll just repeat some of that. And what's your name? Karen. Karen. Karen is saying that um, he wanted to offer what he does when he feels overwhelmed, but he felt that a lot of it was answered uh, during my talk. But he still has the question, or first of all, I think gave his experience when, when he does feel overwhelmed, that he recognizes that it's something that he's not aware of. And so he sits with it for a while. Am I getting this right? And he notices, and I think this is so important, that while um, that was contained in what Gibran said, that the sorrow turns to joy, I think having your very practical experience of how this actually happens, we sit with it, we watch it, we see where it is in our body, and yes, we notice that it dissipates. And somewhere along the way, it may make some things, some awareness of some new things come in. So I, I'm, I'm glad you offered that. And the second part, really good question of how do we know if we're just escaping? If we're just like calling a friend or going out to a movie or, to, you know, are we escaping our suffering? Are we escaping the overwhelm? Or are we really being with it? And you use the 
uh, question is, is that just a band-aid? So most important thing is you're asking that question. So just by asking that question when that happens, am, am I escaping? You're already bringing some awareness. And sometimes, you know, go ahead and escape. But we come back. Uh, again, this is, <laughs> this is the curse of awareness. Once we have opened the door, we really can't stop being aware. So I think, you know, it's okay to escape into a book or call a friend. And then it will come back. You know that it will, and you'll work with it. Or you'll talk to a teacher or a good Dharma friend, um, which isn't escaping. I think it is important to share it, though. So I think when, my, uh, when the person in our group said, call a friend, um, because she's a friend of mine, I know that what happens is that she calls me and we talk about these things. We don't dodge it. And I think it is good to have Dharma friends. I mean, as the Buddha said to Ananda, it's the whole of holy practice. Great questions. Thank you so much, Karen. Anybody else at home or? Yeah, wonderful metaphor. And, you know, working with the word, which does mean to get, you know, drowned. And so, tell me your name? Oh, Rain. Rain. So Rain is saying that when she feels overwhelmed, it's like she's being drawn out by a riptide and you surrender. And, um, which is always better than trying to fight it. And that is, I think, the process that you're talking about too, Karan. It's another way of saying that, that we, um, Karen, I said your name wrong, um, that we uh, experience whatever it is. We don't try to fight it. We don't turn away. Um, I, I heard uh, a talk by Pima Chodron um, maybe a year or so ago, and something really stuck with me. She asked, um, how long does a strong emotion remain? You know, you can, of course, feed it and really think about it, but if you just... An emotion arises, how long will that stay without you doing any anything to it? You know? It's 90 seconds. I think I can handle that. <laughs> but, it, but I can feed it and say, oh my God, what's wrong? I am so afraid. Oh, I'm getting even more afraid. Yeah, whether just then, okay, well, what's fear? Where is it? Yeah, you can ride it out, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. I remember there's a, uh, there's a, there's a informed answer to why it's noble. Um, I think it's about, yeah, I think it's about who, who practices it, you know, the nobles. But I think it's noble, I guess, I think it's um, Stephen Batchelor who calls them the four ennobling truths because it makes you noble, meaning sort of upright and um, sincere and true, much as I think a, a literal noble would have been, you know, in olden times. So I like that. It's ennobling. And the truth of suffering is ennobling because it's, um, it means we're not alone, you know, just like me. 
everybody is going through what they're going through. And again, it's that connection. And some people um, you know, can get into this sort of uh, space and um, of I'm the only one. Why does this just happen to me? And when we realize that connection, um, we can let go a little bit of our suffering. I, I also want to say that the first noble truth, um, sometimes I think that um, the Buddha um, didn't do any, uh, uh, you know, he wasn't a very good marketer. It's not great to hear, like I, I know somebody I've heard who uh, went to listen to Suzuki Roshi in the early days and came back and said, wow, life is suffering, what a bummer. But it isn't that life is suffering, it's there is suffering. And the flip side of that is, of course, there is joy. And I said this once upon a time to somebody I was working with, and she said, oh my God, that is really tough. That's going to take me a long time to get to the depths and really understand there is joy. I'd much rather, you know, she really got the suffering. <laughs> she didn't really want to deal with joy. That was like overwhelming <laughs> to her because it meant she had to, you know, not just drown in her suffering. So, yeah. And didn't miss, didn't miss the, the arising of it. Right. Um, we, well, we'd be more, you know, We'd suffer less. Yeah, we would need it. Yeah, there's a wonderful text which I studied years ago, and maybe you remember what it is, where it describes, you know, the, of um, being aware of the causes of suffering, being aware of the arising of causes of suffering, being aware, like being aware when it happens or after it's happened, but being aware before they arise. Yeah. And I always thought, oh my God, I can't even imagine being that aware that before my suffering arises, I can see it. And the impetus or something. Yeah. But once in a while now that happens, I can see, oh, that's where I would have gotten overwhelmed. I'm not going down that street. When your practice is really settled. Yeah. So give, it, yeah, give see it. See your mind sort of. Fabricating, yeah, or or even about to. About, yeah. <laughs> oh, I could go down that street. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, a and I think you're also pointing to something when you're. You said when you're overwhelmed, it's already happened. So even to have that awareness, it's already in the past, and I'm dwelling on it. Okay, what's happening now? The trucks are going by, the, the uh, chimes are dinging, people are here with me. Yeah, it helps, <laughs> it helps to be in this moment. <laughs> Hope you can hear some of this. Yeah, Randy. Yeah, real quick, this is almost trivial, but I, I had to imagine, just looking at you and your picture at Jokoji, I'm just feeling this great desire to be there and to walk around for about 10-15 minutes you know that's just kind of like this longing 
and and that and I, and I felt that longing for a few minutes but after a while uh and I do this with other things in my life I uh it's the capacity to laugh at myself <laughs> on on little things like that and just kind of go <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the desire finally kind of exists kind of faded away. I'm just laughing at myself and these these things I created in my head. And I mean, some yeah. some suffering I can't do that with, but this is just, you know, a minor thing. But the ability to laugh at myself once in a while is uh, <laughs> it's almost as good as all then. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, probably uh, a uh, result of Zazen. Um, did everybody hear that? Being able to laugh at yourself. Absolutely. I mean, we are such funny creatures. We are such funny creatures, humans. And yeah, being here and walking around is very restorative. I, I recommend it or finding whatever is close to you and walking around in it. Yeah, Karen. Uh, I had another comment. Um, sure. But first, I'd like to say thank you to Randy because, uh, because every time he says something, there is, there is some joy uh, in it. Like, I noticed it for, for a while, so I just want to thank him for his comments. Randy, I don't know if you heard that, but Karen is thanking you because every time you make a comment, there's some joy in it for him. Yeah. 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 And, you know, there's a form of suffering, which is suffering from your suffering. And when you recognize your suffering and you recognize, yeah, I don't want my joys to end. And I do want the suffering to end. When you create a different relationship to your suffering, I think that is contentment. And I think it it may um, be challenged, but I think it becomes more of an underlying base so that you're able to go through things much more on an even keel. Um, I don't know if any of you listen to On Being with Krista Tippett, but she has Sharon Salzberg on the last couple of weeks, and I was listening to it, and um, Sharon Salzberg was talking about equanimity and how we think, we can think that that's indifferent. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all good, or as people like to say, I'm all Zen, which is a, a, an expression that drives me crazy. Because, <laughs> 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 of course, this person knows nothing about Zen, but, oh, I was all Zen. Um, but anyway, um, that equanimity, it's not that indifference. It's not everything is all good. That isn't what it means. It means that relationship to suffering, that you can find your contentment even in the midst of being thrown out to sea. <laughs> you know. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.